First Timothy chapter four. This morning we're going to look at verse thirteen, but I want to go ahead and back up so we can see a little bit of the context. Let me read from verse six. Let's pray before we do so this morning. Our Father, even as we have just prayed in song, so we pray, apart from music, we pray that you would speak to us. It is to your word that we turn, and it is to your voice that we turn. We want to hear from you. We want to hear from you alone, not all the voices that are going around in our heads or have a hold on our hearts, or even this preacher's voice, we want to hear your voice. And so we pray that you would speak to us clearly, that you would speak to us simply by your word this morning. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. First Timothy chapter 4, again our verse this morning, verse 13, but let's back up to verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with the irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And then our verse. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, devote yourself to them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We've begun a sermon series over the last couple of weeks, over these summer months, where we are looking at worship according to the Word. And so we've looked at, so far, we've looked at the what of worship, and we've looked at the why of of worship, and last week we began looking at the how of worship, and we said maybe the easiest way to describe the how of our worship is that we are those who believe that the Scriptures teach, that we are to read the Word, that we are to preach the Word, that we are to sing the Word, that we are to confess the Word, that we are to pray the Word, and that we are to see the Word in the sacraments. So we're going to walk through each of those over these next weeks, and this week especially what I want to do, I want to focus us upon the first two, reading and preaching the Word. 
We could say in a very real sense that the reading of the Word and the preaching of the Word is at the heart of our worship as Christians and as we gather together in corporate worship. I think many in most churches, if you ask them about worship, they would say, well, music is the center or the heart of our worship. But music could be a Christian concert. It could be you standing in your shower singing Christian music. Uh, I think many think that the sacraments uh, are the center or the heart of worship. But you can have a service without the sacraments and have the preached and read word. You can't have a service where you have the sacraments but not the read or preached word because it's the word that governs the sacraments. Now, it's the read word and it's the preached word that is at the heart of biblically faithful worship. And this has always been the case in the church, and this is what, in part, the Reformers recovered in the Reformation, and this is what we continue to emphasize today. At the heart of true biblical worship is the read and the preached word. You see that this morning, and that Paul gives Timothy, his young protege in the ministry, he gives him instructions about what he is to be engaged in until Paul returns. He says, as you minister in Ephesus, Timothy, devote yourself to this, the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Devote yourself. The, the word has the idea of being occupied with, of being consumed with, applying yourself to. This is to consume Timothy's time, and this is to consume his energies. This is the chief duty of a pastor in a local congregation, is to preach the Word, to read the Word. Paul will again emphasize the same thing in chapter two, verse two, or chapter six, verse two, where he says to Timothy, he says, "Teach and urge these things." He'll say the same, similar thing in chapter two, the second letter to Timothy, where he says this. He says, "Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth." This is what it looks like, Timothy, to be a faithful pastor is that you are to read the Word and you are to preach the Word. I often tell younger men uh, in the ministry and remind myself, I tell them that the essence of our ministry is this, is that you love God by loving His people, by lovingly teaching them the Word. You love God, love His people, love the Word, and you connect those three things. It's a kind of tapestry of ministry. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy here. He begins and he says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. It is in our services we are to read the Word of God. Now, each occurrence of this Word that's used here, each time that it's used in the New Testament, it carries with it the idea of publicly reading in a religious meeting or gathering. That is, when the church gathers together, you read. There is too little of this in the church today. Maybe there's too little of that in our own services here at URC. Because the word read is effectual. We follow for most of the year what has been called Lectio Continua preaching. Uh, here at URC, we tend to go through books of the Bible for most of the year. So we 
preach through a book, and we're in this verse, and we end on that verse this week, and so we pick up the next verse the next week and march our way through the Scriptures called Lectio Continua Preaching. And it has a long history in Christendom. Probably most famously is John Calvin when he was in Geneva, and the Genevan church there did not like his preaching. It was too meddlesome, and the church fathers thought he was too controlling in the way that he preached, and so eventually they kicked him out of Geneva, and so he left, and he went to Strasbourg, and he was completely happy in Strasbourg. And after about three years, the church was falling apart, and the city was a mess, and so they were begging for Calvin to come back. And he didn't want to go back, but he believed that God was calling him to go back. It's people that had treated him in incredibly rude ways. And he goes back and he steps into the pulpit on the first Sunday and he doesn't rebuke them. Instead, he just picks up in the next psalm where he'd left off three years before. Just started preaching. It's a lectio continua preaching, believing that preaching through the Scriptures, verse by verse, passage after passage, that there is benefit to the people of God as they sit under that and understand the context of what's happening in those passages. There is also what has been called Lectio Continua reading in the history of the church. That is where you're not only preaching through books like that, but you're also reading through books like that. And so you may have in the service where you have a gospel reading, or you have a reading from the Psalms, or you have a reading from the Epistles. That's not the text that you're going to preach from. There is just too little reading of the Bible in the church today. In fact, I just think there's too little opening of the Bible in church today. I was in a service at another church, and the preacher got up to open the Bible and to preach, and he said, if all of you would open your Bibles, and I had brought my Bible, and I opened it, and I looked around, and I literally was the only person opening my Bible. And then I realized why, because after I opened it and tried to look at the text, I couldn't see it because it was so dark out there. So it was put up on the screens for everybody to see, and that can be helpful. I encourage you to open your Bibles. Not to take your phone out and, and get the screen up, because it's such a distraction. As soon as you hit that little button, all those little notifications pop up, and your brain starts to think it's time to play Candy Crush, or I got to check my email, I wonder if I got that email. But even more importantly, you can't see the context. That's the problem with having it up here or here. You need to see the context. What's come before it? What's come after it? Allow your mind and your eye to go over the page. Open up a literal physical Bible. Look at it. Our scriptures are to be filled with the reading of the Word, the preaching of the Word. We see this, for example, in Acts 13, 15, Paul enters the synagogue there in Antioch, and we read there after the reading from the law and the prophets. This was the normal practice. In the synagogues, a passage of Scripture would be read. 
But as the Ethiopian eunuch said, how am I to understand unless someone explains it to me? And so it's been the practice that after the reading of the word, that there would be an exhortation following the reading. And so we see Paul engage in that in Acts 13. We see Christ do the same thing in Luke 4. He takes the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it up and he reads there from Isaiah 61 and then he exhorts from it. He explains its meaning. We read the word and then we preach the word. The Christian church was following the synagogue and how they worshipped and how they did this. But it has a history much further back than that. Those of you that have been here on Sunday evenings as we just preached through the book of Nehemiah, you saw it in the book of Nehemiah. That as the nation, as they built this wall, and they built this wall around the city of Jerusalem, what did Nehemiah do then? He called all of the congregation together, all of the people, men, women, and children. And he had Ezra the priest read the law, read the word before the people for six hours. And for six hours he read the word. And then we're told that after he read the word, that Ezra and the other priests gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That is, that they read it, and then the priests and Ezra exhorted. They explained it. They made sense of it for the people. We read the word, and we preach the word. This is the very heart of Christian worship. Why? Because this is how God has chosen to meet with His people. This is how God has chosen to convert His people. This is how God has chosen to shape and mold and conform His people to the likeness of Christ. Is by His Word. The Word and the Spirit go together. The Word cannot operate and it is not effectual apart from the Spirit. And the Spirit does not operate apart from the Word. They go hand in hand, and so as God ministers to you and I, He does so by His Spirit as it attends to the Word, and as we receive it in faith. This is how He chooses to work. And so Paul is telling Timothy, look, you are to minister in this way. You read the Word, and you preach the Word until I come to you. And what happens when Paul comes? He's just going to do the same thing. He's going to read the Word, and He's going to preach the Word. Because this is how ministry is done. Now let's look at these two words here that Paul uses to emphasize preaching in this text. I want to take the last first, that word teaching. A teaching, I think, is where most of us go when we think about preaching. It has very much an intellectual quality about it. He says, Teach them the Scriptures, Timothy. That is, give them the principles. Make it clear to their minds what it is that they just heard read. Help them to understand the organization of the passage. Help them to understand the principles that are within it. Shape their minds with the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. There's authority in the preaching of the Word as it instructs the mind. I remember debating with a fellow seminary student 20 plus years ago, and I remember saying to him, I think we should switch it up in church. Uh, I think it's boring to listen to someone do a monologue for 40 minutes. I'd say, why don't we make it more of a 
a question and answer time, more dynamic. I mean, we all like small groups, that there's this give and take in it. And I remember he kept giving me pushback, and I think he would have rightly said, Jason, you don't understand what's happening. I want to make sense of this a little bit and try and understand what's happening in our service. As we've said in previous weeks, as we think about corporate worship and what we're doing here right now in this moment, it's primarily, above all else, about meeting with God, that God is meeting with us. And we are meeting with Him by His Word and by His Spirit. And that's why our services begin with a call to worship. It is God that calls us to worship. You should be in here for that part of the service. That's when it starts. Is that He solicits us and He says, come into my presence. And this is the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? That God takes initiative. It's He who reaches out to us, not we that reach out to Him. And so the call to worship is from the Word of God, where He says to us, come. And we read from the Scriptures, a passage where He's beckoning us to come to Him. And what happens throughout the Scriptures when people come into the presence of God? They immediately recognize who He is. There's no questioning. And so what do we do in response to His call to us? We sing praise. We sing adoration. We lift up His name. Because that is what happens throughout the Scriptures over and over again. But, but once we've been rooted and grounded in who He is, once we've recognized who He is, then what immediately follows that? Is that we begin to recognize who we are, that we're very unlike Him. I don't look like Him. I'm not holy like Him. I'm not righteous like Him. And so what does that lead to? The confession of our sin. We confess our sins before Him. You see this throughout the Scriptures. God calls Isaiah to himself in Isaiah 6, and he sees God for who he is, and all the angels are there ascribing praise to God, holy, holy, holy. And then Isaiah is struck with who God is, and he falls upon his knees, and then what does he recognize? He recognizes that he's a sinner, that he's a man of unclean lips. He's confessing his sin. And what immediately happens after Isaiah recognizes who he is, confessing his sin, then God sends an angel with a coal to touch it to his lips to cleanse him. To say, Isaiah, your sins have been forgiven. You're forgiven. You can be in my presence. And so that is what happens in our services. He calls us to worship. We enter into His presence. We immediately recognize who He is. We give Him praise. As soon as we've done that, though, all of a sudden we realize, you know what? We are sinners through and through. So we confess our sin to Him, but we don't stay there. Every week you hear an assurance of pardoning grace. It is not that John or I or Pastor Kevin are giving some kind of absolution. 
but it's rather it's already yours in Christ. That you have forgiveness in Christ. And so you're welcome in His presence. And so what immediately comes after that? We respond to His forgiveness of our sins by erupting in thanksgiving. And we do that every week as we sing in song. Knowing that we have been forgiven, we come fully with joy into His presence with thanksgiving. And so in our service, we respond with a hymn or a song after, and then and only then we come before Him in prayer. And we pray for one another, and we pray for our church, and we pray for our world. And then once we've spoken to Him, then He responds to us by speaking to us His Word as it's read and as it's preached. And then we respond immediately after that with song. And then He responds with the benediction and the, that blessing from God as we go out into the world together. Do you see what's happening throughout the service? It's dialogical. That is, He speaks, we respond. He speaks, we respond. He speaks, we respond. It's active. As worshipers, we aren't merely sitting in the pew and listening to a monologue for 40 minutes. We are to be engaged. The worship of God is dialogical in nature. We're to be wholly engaged in every part of it. And so that leads us to the sermon. There's a reason the sermon has not been exchanged for a question and answer through the history of the church. There's a reason it hasn't been exchanged for small group gatherings. The word that is often used for preaching in the New Testament, for example, in 2 Timothy 4.2, when Paul speaks to Timothy, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. It has the meaning of proclaim or herald or announce. The preacher is but like the town crier who stands on the wall and says, Hear ye, hear ye, this is what the Lord says. In the preaching of the Word, it is God speaking. So when the pastor who has been called by God as his herald enters the pulpit, he's speaking and he's applying the words of Christ to God's people as the Spirit works and as they receive it by faith. Our services are not pastor-centric. They are Christocentric. We're hearing a word from outside of us. And we need a word from outside of us. We need a word from Christ. I often pray on Sunday mornings before I come up here, usually on the drive here, I pray, Lord, would you so reveal yourself to their minds and their hearts this morning that they see such a clear picture of you that I fade into the background and they forget that I'm even up there? They just hear you speaking to them. He's the creator. We're the creation. He's the king. We are the subjects. He is the head. We are the body. He speaks. We listen. Like Job, it's appropriate that we would put our hands over our mouths and we would just listen. 
Listen to what he has to say. We need this weekly routine of listening, which requires us to put a halt to all our questioning and all of our rationalizing and all of our philosophizing and all of our speculation and just be forced to be quiet before him and listen. But all this is incumbent, isn't it? Upon the pastor proclaiming the word of God. Otherwise, there is no point in listening. A sermon is not the time for the pastor to speculate, to communicate pop psychology. It's not a stand-up comedy routine that the people need. It's not emotional stories that are the order of the day. It's the Word of God. We need to hear from God. Truly powerfully effective preaching is preaching that expounds the Word of God. And yet, it's not just mere intellectual informing, as Paul is pointing out here. It isn't just teaching. He uses that word exhortation. And he is saying to Timothy that the preacher as he preaches is to be aimed at leading the people to respond to that word. Now that response may vary. It may be encouragement, it may be comfort, it may be rebuke, it may be challenge, it may be repentance, it may be faith. It could come in different ways, but the preacher is to be aimed at causing a response. He isn't simply informing mind. He isn't simply just giving you knowledge. That's not his purpose. He is aimed at stirring the affections and moving people's wills by the power of the Spirit as he preaches through their minds. It isn't just a very emotional experience he's trying to cause. No, it's through the mind. Truth has to come to bear. But it's not just the intellect we're seeking to engage just to give you more knowledge. That creates ivory tower Christians, Pharisees. No, it's to grip your affections, stir your affections, and inform your wills and change your lives in the moment and as you go out into the world. We want congregations with minds informed and with hearts inflamed, both well-instructed and well-nourished, both. Jonathan Edwards, the famous 18th century theologian and preacher, once commented, he said, our people don't so much need to have their heads stored as to have their hearts touched. And they stand in greatest need of that sort of preaching that has the greatest tendency to do this. Spurgeon once said this, he said, when the application begins, there the sermon begins. It may be an overstatement, uh, Spurgeon was prone to that, but there's truth in it. Lectures are aimed purely at the head. Sermons are aimed through the mind to grip the affections and stir the will. Learning and piety go hand in hand in the Christian life. You don't truly know until you've been affected by it. And you can't be affected by it until you truly know. It's often been said that 
and John the Baptist preached generally, Herod was glad to hear him. But when John the Baptist began to preach specifically, applying truth, touching upon the sins in Herod's own life, that that is when John the Baptist lost his life. Sermons can be costly. They can be costly for the preacher. They can be costly for the congregant, and they are meant to be. As has been said, the preacher's job is to give comfort to the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. That's his job. And the church needs more of this kind of preaching. Four quick applications. First, as you listen to the reading of the Word and the preach Word, listen astutely. Listen astutely. That is, don't be satiated with pop psychology or cute stories or humor or superficial, shallow Christianity. Your souls need more than that. Insist upon sound preaching. Paul gives quite a warning in 2 Timothy after telling Timothy there to preach the Word. He says this, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. And that's a warning both for you and for me, for both of us. I pray that I preach in a way that gives comfort to you by God's Word. But I also pray that I preach in a way that you are often, often made uncomfortable by God's Word. There should be moments that you walk out of here and you think, I don't like that preacher and I don't like what he said. And I'm supposed to be all right with that and so are you. The Word of God meddles. It comforts. But it, doesn't also, it also doesn't leave us comfortable, and it wasn't meant to. It challenges, it rebukes, it reproves, it exhorts. Listen astutely and demand the Word. Second, listen attentively. The Word read and the Word preached is not to be received passively. Even as the preacher's goal is to see lives affected by the preach word, so the person sitting in the pew should desire to be affected by the preach word. Otherwise, why are you here? That means that as much as the preacher is to be engaged in the preaching of the word, so the congregation is to be engaged in the preaching of the word. As active as the preacher is in preaching, so the congregation is to be active in preaching. As the preacher is accountable for what he says, so the congregation is accountable for what it hears or what it doesn't hear. As the Scottish preacher James Stewart said, he said, the aim of preaching is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. What incredible ground we stand upon. 
when the Word of God is read and when the Word of God is proclaimed and the Spirit of God is attending to it and you and I are receiving it by faith. Truly, cosmic things happen in this room. Do you believe the Scriptures are the powerful voice of God? If not, you won't listen attentively. Do you believe the writer of Hebrews when he says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart? Do you believe God when he says to the prophet Isaiah, my word that goes out from my mouth, it does not return to me void. It will accomplish the purposes for which I sent it. Do you believe Paul when he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? Do you believe him when he says in Romans 10, how are they to call on him in whom they have not yet believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not yet heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Do you believe Paul when he says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ? If you do, then you listen attentively. Third, listen prayerfully. Continually call upon the Spirit to work. I confessed it this morning from the Westminster Confession, the larger catechism, question 155. How is the Word made effectual to, unto salvation? And it begins the Spirit. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God makes it effectual. And throughout the week, as I'm preparing to preach to you, I am praying throughout the week, Father, help me to know the right things to say. Help it to affect my own heart so I'm preaching from my heart to their heart. Would you bless me with the right applications? Would you bless me with the right illustrations? Would you bless me with the right tone of the text? But all of that is for naught. That the Spirit isn't working by the Word in our midst. And that's why I pray it over and over and over. All of you, it's for naught that you got out of your bed this morning. And that you did your hair. And that you got dressed. And that you wrestled the kids into the car. And that you walked in the door. It's all for naught if the Spirit's not at work. And so we pray. We pray that the Spirit will be at work in our midst. Charles Spurgeon, every time he would walk up the stairs to get into the pulpit, he prayed the same thing every single time, said to himself over and over. Part of the Apostles' Creed. He would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that gives me confidence each week to stand here. As John Piper said, all genuine preaching is rooted in a feeling of desperation. As Richard Baxter once wrote, he said, I preach as a dying man to dying men. 
I know I'm not smart enough. I know I'm not charismatic enough. I know I'm not engaging enough. I know I'm not astute enough about what you need. I know that there is nothing that I can say, there is nothing that I can do that can move you from one slight moment of glory to the next. I can't do it. It's not in my power. It's not in my ability. I can't take any of your stony hearts and turn them fleshly. I can't root out sin in any of your lives. I can't get any of you to delight in Christ more. But I enter this pulpit every week with confidence. Not in me, but that God chooses to work by His Spirit according to His Word. He works that way and does the miraculous in our midst through even a weak vessel like this. He works by His Word read and He works by His Word preached. So let's pray that He would indeed work in our midst. Would you pray throughout the week? Would you pray before you Come here on Sunday morning. Actually prepare your hearts for the receiving of the Word. Would some of you actually get here early and enter the sanctuary and sit here and pray for what's going to happen over the next hour and a half? And when you are in the service, don't stop praying. Be praying as you're sitting out there. You're praying for yourself. God, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you take and mold my heart and shape it and conform it more to Christ? Ah, oh, I didn't realize that truth. Impress that upon me. Oh, I forgot that. Remind me of that over and over. And then you start praying for one another. Would you bless them across the room? Would your word come to bear upon all the souls in this room? Would you take those that are unconverted in the room and turn their hearts of stone into flesh? Would you take those that are struggling with anxiety and depression and lift their countenance? We pray for each other. We pray for the Spirit to be at work. And when you go home, you pray on the way home. You pray when you lay down at night. Calvin, maybe this is one of the reasons that he was so brilliant. Everything stayed in his mind, it seems. He had the habit of every night when he laid down at night and he went to sleep, before he went to sleep, he would review everything he had learned during the day. And he would pray about it. And then he said before he would get out of the bed in the morning, the first thing he would do was review everything he had reviewed the night before and pray about it. Imagine if we prayed every Saturday, Sunday night about what we heard Sunday, and then before we got up Monday, prayed about it. I wonder what the Lord would do in our midst. Finally, listen responsively. There's a very real sense in which we're not listening to the preacher, but to God. And yet, we'll say when we leave a service, we'll say, I didn't get much out of that service today, did you? But more often, that is a commentary upon us than it is upon the service of the preacher. I've learned that I can sit under the youngest of preachers. I can sit under 
the least gifted of preachers. I can sit under the least knowledgeable of preachers. And I can learn. I can be stirred. As long as they are opening that word. If they are opening that word and reading that word and they are preaching from that word, there is something there for me to learn and to be moved by and to be stirred by and to be conformed to. Come wanting to be changed. Listen responsively. Al Mohler said, don't ask, did you get anything out of that? But will I obey the word of God? How must my thinking be realigned with Scripture? How must I change my behavior to be fully obedient to the Word? John Piper commented saying this. He said, laughter seems to have replaced repentance as the goal of many preachers. Laughter means people feel good. It means they like you. It means you have moved them. It means you have some measure of power. It seems to have all the marks of successful communication if the depth of sin and the holiness of God and the danger of hell and need for broken hearts are left out of account. Would you become more like Christ? And there is nothing more needful for your soul than to sit under the word read and the word preached. Would you be freed more and more from the burden of the guilt of your sin? And there's nothing more needful for your soul than to sit under the word read and the word preached? Would you find more comfort in Christ for your discouraged soul than there is nothing more needed for you than to sit under the word read and the word preached? Would you fill your mind more with the things of Christ, set them on heavenly things, than there is nothing more needful for your soul to sit week in and week out under the word read and the word preached. Your soul desperately needs it because it's how God has chosen to work. So let us listen astutely. Let us listen attentively. Let us listen prayerfully and let us listen responsibly. Let's watch Him work. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are not a God who sits on high just watching the actions of men and women and children, but that you're active in this world by your Spirit. And what a gift we have been given in your Word. We're thankful that in your Word we can know who you are and what it is that you desire from us. Forgive us that we treat it so tritely. I confess that for myself. Confess that for all of us in this room. Would you help us to treasure it more fully, especially hearing it read and preached? And would you do a mighty work in us for your glory, for the good of our souls, and for the good of those around us? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.